I'm going to go out on a limb and bet that many of you listening have enjoyed a number of TV shows that break down the investigation and analysis of various crime scenes. Now, keep in mind, there are real people out there who actually do this for a living, and one of their goals is often to analyze blood spatter. Blood scene pattern analysis at its most basic level is very simple fluid dynamics. When you put a blood mass under force, it will respond in a relatively predictable fashion. And so we get what are basically class characteristic patterns. And they don't tell us anything about the crime. They tell us about the behavior of the blood and what kind of force was acting on it. Well, I have to then consider that understanding of that force in that unique crime scene. Thanks for joining us here on LJN Radio. I'm your host, Tim Muma. On this edition of You Do What?, I'm thrilled to have on Ross Gardner. He's a crime scene analyst and bloodstain pattern analyst for Bevel Gardner and Associates. Now, Ross is one of the most respected experts in these fields, and he even has a couple editions of a book that he wrote that many in this area use as a guide. Thank you for coming on the show today, Ross. It's my pleasure to be with you, Tim. Now, you're currently working uh, in a number of different capacities, but I wanted to ask how you would describe some of your positions, your duties that you've had throughout most of your career. Well, I began uh, as a law enforcement officer. Uh, Most of my career was spent with the United States Army, Uh, some short period as a military policeman. Then I worked as a uh, covert uh, drug suppression operative. And that got me introduced to the United States Army's Criminal Investigation Command because the CID ran the drug program. I just wore, I was young and I worked undercover for them. And I ultimately uh, became a CID special agent, which is a felony criminal investigator uh, for the Army. Okay. And in that capacity, in that role, we were responsible. I mean, this is some years ago, and the concept of a crime scene investigator. The investigator, the detective was the crime scene investigator. And so I had, you know, the responsibility of crime scene investigation and the investigation itself. That is interesting. You mentioned that differentiation uh, from then to now. If we go back to that beginning portion of your career, was there something then that attracted you more to the crime scene analysis portion of it as opposed to kind of that broad spectrum of being a detective? The interesting part about this business is that it's it's very challenging, and all investigations are think of them as big puzzles. Mm-hmm. Uh, the crime scene uh, has always been our most objective evidence. Uh, for the last hundred years, we've understood that crime scenes don't really tell lies. They might mislead us on occasion, but that's usually our fault. <laughs> Whereas testimonial evidence is always suspect. Sure. And so I always recognize the role of the crime scene and then and to understand the concept, the crime scene investigation is the act of collecting and documenting the data that is present within the scene. Crime scene analysis is where we take all of that data and we make sense of it uh, in an objective fashion. So the natural consequence of most crime scene investigators is that they are left to try and make sense of that and they get into crime scene analysis. So I found that very challenging, very intriguing, and I was particularly drawn to the area of bloodstain pattern analysis early on. Well, and that was actually where I was going to go with it next was just curious if you had a particular aspect of it that caught your attention, drew your eye. I actually saw you, uh, 
on a show, Forensic Files, if people uh, are familiar with that show, talking about some specific areas. And I was wondering if you could go a little bit more detail as far as where you like to kind of dive into things. I love crime scene analysis in general. It is its own discipline, uh, and we spend a lot of time on that. It has a theory. It has supporting principles and methodologies that we have to apply in order to remain objective. Mm -hmm. But once again, you know, if I go back to my early days, bloodstain patterns uh, were always very intriguing uh, in the sense that you come to the scene, you find these different types of bloodstain patterns, you understand they're telling you something uh, and trying to understand what they could tell you and what you could gain from that was always very important to me. And so as early as 1988, I really was putting a lot of emphasis on trying to understand them. And so that's been a, a big part of it. But once again, you know, as a criminal investigator, I found crime scene analysis was just a nat natural offshoot. Sure. And uh, so the BPA and the shooting incident reconstruction, they are sub parts of crime scene analysis. And certainly uh, they intrigue me because of the challenges they represent. Just quickly on the uh, the bloodstain patterns, again, as somebody who watches a lot of shows, the real-life shows, not the ones necessarily that might stretch the truth on some things, is there something that to you maybe people don't realize about that or something that's a little more complicated than just, well, you know, clearly the blood was going this way, so this is what happened? I mean, is there something you can give us a little more detail on as far as the blood patterns? Bloodstain pattern analysis at its most basic level is very simple fluid dynamics. When you put a blood mass under force uh, and different types of forces, it will respond in a relatively predictable fashion. And so we get what are basically class characteristic patterns. We have about 17 basic patterns we can recognize. Okay. And they don't tell us anything about the crime. They tell us about the behavior of the blood and what kind of force was acting on it. Well, I have to then consider that understanding of that force in that unique crime scene. For instance, if I put blood at a point source and I hit it or I uh, put it under a force or an impulse, it must displace as little tiny uh, droplets sure. and it radiates out. Well, I can do that about a million and one ways that have nothing to do with the criminal act. So if, after I understand what the bloodstain pattern, what force mechanism was in play there, that general thing, then I have to look within that crime scene and say, okay, within this unique crime scene, what similar mechanisms were in play and can I isolate one of them to this particular uh, pattern? So there's a little bit more than just, you know, you see it and you know it kind of thing. Right. Oh gosh, that must be where he swung the, the bat because we're always looking at alternative causes. Was the victim's hands bloody and was he swinging? something causing cast off or is that the weapon being swung you know it's it's not as simple as it might seem so when you're going through kind of this breakdown are you trying to eliminate something like this could not have happened or this could not be the case are you simply looking to find as best you can what the action was is the combination of both How, what kind of goes through your mind what's the process like when you're trying to kind of gather up all that together well, we're going to follow scientific method, and scientific method revolves around the idea of refutation, not uh, identifying the thing, because that's the danger is when you start to think that you've got it all locked down to a single event, that's when you get in trouble. So, for instance, with the patterns, when I recognize a pattern for, hey, this is spattered, in other words, blood at a point source displaced outward, I know 
at that moment that that is not a function of cast off. I know that is not a function of streaming ejection. I know that is not a function of uh, some kind of contact or accumulation. So I've effectively eliminated a lot of potential explanations. Sure. Then, once again, now that I – and with all class characteristic evidence, what class characteristic evidence does is it allows us to say this cannot be part of that group, and it can be part of this group. So once I've, I, I, I've isolated that mechanism, then I can – again, I look in that unique crime scene and say, okay, what type of activity was going on here that correlates to that? Now, are there certain types of crime scenes that could be more challenging, uh, whether it's location or the details of possibly what happened? Is there something that makes it more challenging, or does it not necessarily work in that way? Well, there, every one of them is unique, and every one is, is challenging in and of itself because we always uh, refer to the, uh, the archaeologist dilemma. You think about it, again, as a puzzle. Mm-hmm. I don't know the gentleman's name. I saw this years and years ago on a PBS program, and I always wanted to reference him, but I don't know who he was. But he said, <laughs> hey, as an archaeologist, they said, what's your job like? He said, imagine having a jigsaw puzzle, 500 piece, and I reach into the box, and I take two handfuls, and I throw them down in front of you, and I take the rest of the pieces and the box top, and I throw it away. And then I come back to you, and I say, okay, tell me what that picture looks like based on the pieces you have. Well, crime scene analysts and uh, investigators deal with the same problem. We only have so many pieces of the puzzle. So crime scenes by themselves are unique because we don't have the whole picture. We never have all the puzzle pieces. Now, as to your question, I think shooting scenes are probably, to me, the most uh, problematic, the most difficult. Because in crime scene analysis, we are attempting to describe objective actions that occurred and then wherever possible, put those actions in order, in other, in the proper sequence. Uh, shooting scenes offer a lot of significant information. We know directions of bullets and what kind of, based on the ballistics, we know whose guns and we can associate cartridge cases and bullets to weapons and so forth. But uh, in terms of understanding order in which that occurred, that is always very, very uh, difficult in a shooting scene. They demand a very objective approach. Again, I find all this uh, extremely fascinating. I mean, all of the information that you're giving us, I think, is intriguing in its own regard, and hopefully people listening can agree with that. I think one thing everyone is probably thinking about is in terms of technology. Over the years, obviously, you've, you've been in the business, so to speak, for a number of years. Um, how do you see technology Having changed the industry, improved the analysis, the investigations, um, would you point to one or two things in particular that you say really has kind of upped the ante for you guys? Well, I think you think of technology as being a a value-added type circumstance. I mean, look at a blood stain in and of itself. A hundred years ago, somebody looked at that and they said, hey, that looks like blood. And then they came up with a test and said, well, that is blood, and oh, by the way, it's human blood. And then they came up with a way to separate out some of the enzymes and the blood type, and oh, hey, that's B positive, PGM 1.2. And with every additional knowledge, once again, that's setting a class. Mm -hmm. Hey, nobody who has A positive could have given this. And now we're at that point where 
with DNA, the probability statistics are like one in 650 billion typically. <laughs> and so by it's assumed that when you get that kind of statistical data, that when you have a match of alleles, that you're, the probability is you're looking at that person's blood. I mean, it's assumed to be that person's blood and no one else's. Sure. So you think of technology as giving us more data to work with and more refined data and additional things, you know, trace DNA, of course, have techniques for recovering uh, footwear marks. Uh, the electrostatic lifters have come along and they give us more opportunities. We have new means of uh, recovering fingerprints uh, more effectively. Uh, and uh, of course, 3D laser technology just for crime scenes themselves is, is significant because what that's doing is we're now able, rather than taking a ruler and a tape measure and trying to measure a bunch of stuff, that 3D laser technology allows us to capture a whole lot of data. So I think you think of technology with each new step in technology in the various disciplines, the investigation and everyone, the, the entire criminal justice program, uh, defense and uh, prosecution, have more and more data on which to uh, decide and whether they believe a particular hypothesis or not. Uh, that is definitely a fascinating part of it. And my wife and I often comment, and maybe it's a bad way to think of it, but like, how do you think you're going to get away with anything nowadays with all the technology? It really is uh, quite impressive what kind of the tools are at your expense. With that in mind, are there any particular cases, maybe one or two, that you're proud to be a part of? I mean, obviously any of them I'm sure you could point to, but is there any one that stands out in your mind that you really were happy that you were able to help out in that regard? There are two sides to that coin because we do both defense and prosecution. Sure. I've been involved in cases in which I truly believe they were uh, uh, in, they were innocent, and in front of a jury, we sufficiently presented some information that helped the jury decide that they, they felt they were. So I feel good in those true innocence cases. Uh, at the same time, I've been involved in some significant, I mean, truly – uh, heartbreaking uh, homicides, you know, families that were wiped out, uh, that in my own small way, if I'm able to help the investigators or help the jury to understand what's going on and to better present that to the jury so they're more confident about what decisions they're going to make. And, you know, that really goes back down to the, the wire in, in this whole business is that in the end, we weren't there we didn't see it. Right. And all we can do is give the jury the best information possible on which to decide a very difficult question. You know, who is responsible and to what level are they responsible? So I don't know. I, I find all of the cases uh, in the end, I, I come away and I'm happy to, to do what I do. I mean, I don't solve cases. All I do is I help investigators understand them. I help prosecutors and defense counselors understand what was or wasn't happening. And then if that aids uh, the criminal justice system, well, then that's a good thing. Well, and I appreciate you bringing up both sides of the coin there because uh, you're right. I think most people feel that a position like yours, you're always the one sort of helping to put someone away or find the right person versus, you know, sometimes it is on the defense side. So, uh, again, I think a, a good job of differentiating the two. 
What are some of the common misconceptions you believe that are out there in terms of crime scene investigation or analysis? And again, this might be something that you know people watch a lot of TV shows and movies. You don't have to go that route, but I feel a lot of times when we talk with professionals, uh, they mention that a lot as far as the myths and misconceptions. Well, I think the first one is the one that you just raised a moment ago, and I think there is a misconception. Granted, not every police department and every investigative unit operates at the level they should, and we're constantly looking to make everybody better, but a good detective, a good crime scene investigator works to bring out the truth. You know, it is not to put someone in jail. Mm -hmm. I took an oath many, many, many moons ago, and in part it said that I shall at all times seek diligently to discover the truth, deterred neither by fear nor prejudice. That meant I had as much responsibility to exonerate someone as I did to go to the DA or the judge advocate and say this person's responsible. So I think that's the first myth that you, if we have a – in our society, if we have a solid system, the investigators and the, invest, the crime scene investigators certainly are out there pursuing truth. The other misconception really does boil back down to what you, you described, and that is particularly in crime scenes. With all the crime scene shows, and God only knows they're everywhere, <laughs> there's this thing we call the CSI effect mm -hmm. where juries truly think that what they see on TV is what happens and that we can just go and, you know, in 45 minutes, somebody can just, <laughs> you know, solve it all. And unfortunately, um, most of that is fictionalized. It's, there's a little bit of truth in there. Uh, and so I think there are sometimes that the juries and the system has expectations beyond what is possible. That is certainly one part of it. And again, it's the idea that we really are working with very minimal data. And investigators, crime scene analysts, forensic scientists in general – we only have the data to work with, and so we're never going to be able to look you in the eye and say, absolutely, boy, howdy, this is exactly what happened, and it started this way and it went that way. You know, we just can't do that. Right. Well, Ross, I've uh, truly enjoyed talking with you and getting some of the details and insight into this profession and, and really in a couple different areas, as you uh, mentioned a few times throughout the interview. I did want to close in asking you, if someone were interested in a career, whether it's crime scene investigation or analysis, uh, what would, in your mind, be their best path? Where would you kind of direct them if you could? Well, I'll tell you that it depends upon where you are in the United States, and I think the first thing you want to do is where you plan to work. You need to understand your career path. There are still organizations where the crime scene investigators are sworn officers. In other words, you're going to have to go become an officer hmm. and find your way into crime scene investigation or the to, to get into that role. There are other areas uh, within the United States where we are civilianizing that, and those are unsworn. And so it's very dependent upon the general region or area organization that you might be interested in. And the other good thing, or the other thing that you should be pursuing at this point is, I'm, I'm an anachronism. I'm, I'm the old school guy. <laughs> I I came to science through the back door. Sure. Uh, I was an investigator. Uh, I got involved in bloodstain power analysis, which demanded I understand that 
a scientific method and the scientific approach to dealing with that. Um, today, the very few uh, folks who get into the true major crime scene organizations or crime scene investigation organizations, they generally need a solid uh, science degree. So a good bachelor of science program where there's an emphasis on forensics is a good starting point, and then always look for a good master's program. There are a lot of uh, small colleges that try to fill that gap, but honestly, you want a really good for the future, you want a solid uh, science uh, background, biology, chemistry, all of those things, because I think that's where uh, crime scene investigators will be in the future because of the technology and of the requirement to understand all this 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 technology that's going on. Well, Ross, uh, again, some excellent stuff. Good insight as well into a couple different ways possibly to get into these professions. Truly appreciate you coming on and sharing with us. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Tim. Glad to be here with you. With that, we will wrap up this episode of You Do What and our look at the unique and captivating position of a crime scene analyst. Once again, our guest today was Ross Gardner of Bevel Gardner & Associates, and they provide instruction, consultation, and analysis in a variety of areas in this field. So if you want to give us your take on this career or maybe suggest another job we can dive into, send us an email, ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com. We always appreciate your feedback. You can also hit us up on Twitter at the LJN. And, of course, you can always find any of our episodes on iTunes. Just search LJN Radio, and you'll find it right there in the iTunes store. Thank you once again for listening. I'm Tim Muma. We'll talk to you later.